Welcome to the Data Cafe. I'm Jason. And I'm Jeremy. And today we're talking about change points. So what is a change point, Jeremy? Change points for me are the secret weapon of the data scientist. And I think surprisingly little known um, in the data science community, but extremely well known from the statistics community, luckily. So change points are, as the name describes, a point of change. Okay, so to really understand this, we have to understand what they're changing and what is, what is actually changing. And what's changing is uh, data. So the data that we consume all the time is as a particular level, maybe. And I think a good example of this might be um, your heartbeat or something like this. And this, if you were to take your heart rate, you'd get a figure, I don't know, 70 beats per minute. Um, and if you're uh, just sitting, sitting down, maybe that figure drops slowly over time, goes to 60, or if you're really healthy, 50 beats a minute. But um, if you start doing exercise suddenly, then that, that, that figure changes. You, you, your heart rate goes up. And it can do so quite quickly to compensate the heart's trying to get the oxygen around the body. So that change in heart rate represents a change point. So a change point is a change in a sequence of data over time, typically. Right. So it's something that has a measurable change and is of particular interest, I guess because it's at that point that there is something that has motivated what physical phenomenon or underlying structure to the data has changed that you as a scientist or a user or maybe a medic, if you're um, tracking the heart, you're interested in that. Yes, absolutely. So these change points turn out to be often critical, sometimes safety critical, but, but really super important in many, many areas. If you're monitoring pollution levels in the atmosphere and you see a spike in pollution levels, then that could be really important, very necessary. You might need to take some mediating action about that. If you're monitoring uh, somebody's heart or you're monitoring some vital statistic in a hospital, then if that changes dramatically, almost certainly you need to be alerting a doctor. Yeah. And when you said there, if you're changing a statistic, I'm guessing we set this up as some sort of a hypothesis test that a significant change has occurred. So our hypothesis is probably nothing has changed. And then if at a point of change, our um, hypothesis is that there's something significantly different here, that's the point in time that we concern ourselves with intervening or analyzing that change. Exactly. As I said, this is a statistical technique. So we have to have a way of measuring this statistically. And exactly as you say, it's set up as a hypothesis to discard or to accept. So I, I think what would be really helpful is, is if we ask, you know, how do we go about detecting change points? And to ask that really, we need to, need to ask an earlier question, which is why do we need to go and detect uh, change points at all? And I think there's loads of very good reasons. So one of them, especially in data science, is forecasting. Forecasting relies heavily on pre-trained models. So historic trends, 
seasonality that's been observed before. And if a large change point occurs, it can seriously disrupt a forecast algorithm if it's not designed to adapt to that change really, really quickly. So, you know, if you've got a forecast then that's linked to how many people you're going to hire in a particular area or a supply chain, you're going to be seriously disrupted if a change point has come along and it's wrecked your forecast. It will embarrass you in quite a, a serious way. Funny example about this, um, referring to TV pickup, which is where the national grid has some surge. And for example, in a live stream of a TV finale, if everybody gets up at the ad break and turns on the kettle, then you have a surge on the demand for power, some dramatic change in the stats that they have on that. Exactly. And I think what you've highlighted there is an, another really excellent use of, of change points, which is in, in, in picking up the anomaly, in picking up the, the outlier almost in, in, in behavior, something that happens that's exceptional. And, you know, what could be more exceptional at the moment than uh, a coronavirus pandemic, which if you look at many, many time series and many, many sequences of data around the environment, around use of public transport, around the financial markets, you find these huge uh, spikes, drops off a cliff in terms of um, activity uh, on all of these examples around the beginning of March, end of February in many countries because the coronavirus shutdown happened in the way it did and affected you know huge swathes of society and so another really exciting and interesting uh, use of change points is is quickly picking up that kind of change totally unforeseen to many people but picking up that kind of change so that it can be taken into account by the various algorithms that need to run off of that data it's interesting to think of it as a fluctuation that itself is strong enough that isn't a independent outlier but is an indication of a process change at some level that even though it might only be for a short amount of time it's not technically just an outlier because of some return to normal directly after but that there's a you know a time a longevity of some measure to it that there's an interval where this change is dominant to some degree. Like in my background of solar physics, the solar physics community are um, looking for the next solar maximum in the solar cycle. And they're right. counting the sunspots on the surface of the sun. And if that deviates in some way, like such as a change point might indicate, then perhaps they are entering a new maximum or maybe there's a persistent minimum and that's very scientifically interesting because of the effects of the sun on um, space weather and the earth. I think you've picked up a really good example there because one of the things that change points are excellent at doing is picking up these significant changes in unusual environments, any environment, where you have no idea why or how that change has come about. And I think that's probably one of the most powerful aspects of change points because, you know, in the context of the sun, a sunspot may be being caused by something internal 
at the core of the sun that, that's taking many hundreds or thousands of years to reach the surface. And exactly the same way, a, a change that you see in the, the operation of a company, maybe a promotion that's launched or a new customer that departs the company, causes a huge change in some of the statistics around that company's operation. And yet, to the people trying to manage the resourcing in that company, all they know is that they woke up one morning and suddenly there's not, there's not quite as much custom going on. There's not as many packages going out. There's not as many widgets need to be made. But if you've got a change point detection mechanism in place, suddenly you can spot that quite quickly. You can recalibrate your, your forecasting again or your operational optimizer and you can get your system reset for the new normal. And that's, that's yeah. what it's about. It's about finding the new normal as quickly as possible. Yeah, one of the areas that I was thinking of with this, and even in the context of the lockdown, where a lot of us have moved to virtual conference calls and using software such as Zoom. And I've noticed that Zoom can suppress the people who aren't the main speaker and it allows everybody to focus on the predominant speaker at the time. But something must be happening there to either measure what's background noise or what's somebody making a noise that doesn't mean they're now interrupting or taking over the call. But it's not a significant enough change for the software to decide this audio needs to be amplified or um, suppressed, whatever the case may be. You interviewed with Dr. Rebecca Killick, who's a specialist in this. Let's hear what she said. Joining me in the Data Cafe today is Dr. Rebecca Killick, who's Associate Professor in Statistics from Lancaster University. Rebecca, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us. Hi, thanks for the invite. Uh, we're really delighted to be able to talk to you about your work in time series and statistics. So I think really we ought to kick off with, can you give us a, a pricey for what a change point is from a, a statistician's perspective? Yeah, that, that's, um, that one's a fairly um, interesting question because it, it depends on what you're thinking about. But in general, the way that I think about a change point is that we have some ordered data um, which may be collected across time or across the genome, um, things like that. But you have some order to the way that your data is collected. And the idea is that the, the statistical properties are not the same across that ordering. So um, a change point is when they have a distinct difference between the statistical properties from one time point to the next. So as, a, as an example, um, you could have... Um, as you're kind of, you've got your phone in your pocket as you're moving around, um, there's an accelerometer in there that will be collecting data mm -hmm. over time. As you move, um, that's kind of one statistical property. You might stay still and sit down. That's another statistical property. You might go to sleep and just put your phone on the side of the bed. That, that's another change point as well. So every time you change your behavior, um, there'll be likely a change point in the data for that. So it might result in a change in any aspect of the data then. It, it could be that there's a change in a mean or a trend. Uh, does any statistical feature count when we're looking at change points? So any, any statistical measure counts from that point of view. Um, obviously, for certain applications that we're working on, we might be more interested in some properties changing than others. Um, so if, if you're looking at sleep states, for example, you'll be more interested in, in the variability and the correlation structure. Um, whereas if you're interested in 
for example whether you're walking up the stairs then you'll be interested in kind of the the um what we call the z value and how high the the accelerometer is from from um the ground on that so yeah depending on what what you're interested in and what question you've got you'll have different types of change or different types of statistical properties that will be interesting to you i know you've done studies with change points in many areas which applications have been really interesting for you to work on yeah so as, as you say there's been a huge amount of areas right the way through from um in health um through environments through official statistics through business and um, a wide range of applications that, that we've worked on. Um, some interesting ones to me are, are the kind of the environmental side, um, because you can look at lots of different um, types of change at that point. Um, and um, an interesting recent example is, is when we've been looking at the data following the lockdown. Um, so we're at the point where um, air quality for example we're taking lots of different air quality measurements and you can see a clear change point as to when the the lockdown occurred and actually a week before the lockdown when people were really starting to get worried about it and being encouraged to work from home and um, so there's there's an interesting dynamic there um, where we can clearly see a change point even though it's fairly close to the recent recent past so that's where the co2 or was it particulate pollution just fell away over a short time period that would count as a change point in the pollution measurements, would it? That would count as a change point in this context, yeah. And th there's actually some um, in environmental indicators that have actually increased since lockdown and some that have decreased. Um, so they haven't all gone in, in what we would call a positive direction. So what makes change point detection hard then from a statistician's perspective? Yeah, so from, from that point of view, there's kind of two aspects. One is um, if we've got a volume of data um, whereby we, we might have change points that are quite easy to detect by eye, but you just have so many different series that you want to look at that it then becomes difficult um, to actually be able to look at all of those by eye to be able to get where the change points are. So that can be one reason why you might want to use some automatic change point detection is if the changes are small relative to the to the noise within the data, um, if that's what you want what you're interested in. Or equally if you've got a mixture of um, smaller and larger changes. Um, if you've got um, correlation within the data then that can be challenging too. Um, you need to properly take account of that um, and you know, quite a few of the off-the-shelf methods don't do that by default. Um, so that's quite interesting as well. So Rebecca, I noticed in some of your work that you didn't look at the time series directly to identify change points, but instead you were looking at the error in the time series or the residual in the time series against a particular base model, for instance. What would be really interesting to understand is when is it a good idea to look at change points in a derived function like the residuals rather than in the vanilla time series itself? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And as, as we kind of want to move more things in an online fashion, kind of have them um, be automatically processed from that point of view, it, it does kind of um, lead to an interesting question of, well, what should my time series be like before I actually look for change points? Um, now, oft, often I would be advocating that, well, if you're looking at the original data, then you want to look for change points in the original data. But sometimes, as I kind of alluded to in the last question, um, it can be really difficult to find change points um, or to know what might be changing in your data if there's a lot going on. 
So for example, if you've got lots of seasonal components or, you, or you've got um, a complicated correlation structure and you don't think these things are going to change over time, you know, um, then it can be complicated to try and create a model that accounts for change points. Maybe you do, you've just got a change in intercept, for example, and right. you've got lots of different covariates that are in, interacting um, or, you know, are um, affecting you, the um, data that you've, that you've obtained. Um, you might want to have, you know, 10, 20, you know, or even two or three covariates and say that those coefficients don't change. That's something that really hasn't been properly solved in the change point field at the moment. So one way to get around that would be to fit a model for all of those dynamics, acknowledging the fact that the model will be wrong. So you can't take any inference from those coefficients because the change points will be uh, corrupting the estimation of those coefficients. But then in the residuals, you've kind of removed a lot of that variation, not completely because obviously the coefficients have been affected, mm. but you've removed a lot of that variation that makes it a lot easier to then be able to identify the, those change points uh, in the intercepts or, or if you've got change points in, in variance, for example. Then at that point, you can then put those as kind of fixed effects or, or fixed covariates inside your original model. There's a slight downside to that, which is that the variability of those is not then taken into account, but at least that's allowing you to do that estimation um, without having um, the other signal dynamics coming through and complicating your model further, which means that you might not be able to fit it in a reasonable amount of time. And I know that you've done considerable work yourself in developing algorithms to enhance change point detection. And one of the exciting algorithms you developed is the PELT algorithm. Can you tell us how that technique really enhanced the state of the art? Yeah, sure. Um, so the PELT stands for Pruned Exact Linear Time Algorithm. And um, it, we developed that in 2012, or rather the paper was published in 2012. What that essentially did was it allowed people to be able to fit what, what is um, an exact optimization of the characterization of the change point model. So if you create a change point model, you don't know where the change points are, you don't know how many there are, and the PELT algorithm allows you to kind of fit that optim optimization uh, or to solve that optimization problem exactly. So you know that you've guaranteed that, that you're going to get the exact um, minimum or maximum, depending on how you characterize the, uh, mm. the model, mm. but you're going to get an exact solution to that problem and provided that your change points are regular throughout the data, you will get that in a linear time. Prior to that, there was a, a quadratic time algorithm as, as the, the, the most appropriate exact solution, or because that was actually quite complicated for um, longer time series, people would be using a binary segmentation approach, which is whereby you find your first change point and then you split the data throughout that and keep splitting and splitting. But that has its issues with, you know, it's not guaranteed to find the exact solution to the problem. I think that's so important being able to do these calculations with an eye to the, the computational complexity of the approach. Certainly from the industrial perspective, as you will know, being able to take on board huge amounts of data and process it in a reasonable amount of time and come up with an important feature like a change point is the difference between it being a successful technique or being one that often doesn't even get used. Definitely. Perfect. And also have, having the knowledge that if you run the algorithm again, you're going to get the same answer. 
which isn't necessarily yeah. the same for, for, for a lot of um, algorithms that are out there that try to speed it, to speed up the process. Um, so I, I, I think that's really, really important and um, the computational time of, of these algorithms that we're fitting. Fantastic. Rebecca, thank you very much for joining us in the Data Cafe today. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. So I think Rebecca raises a really interesting point, which comes to the heart of the problem, which is why this is hard, because if you're spotting these changes, and we're not just talking about changes in levels, we're not just talking about a share price going from, uh, you know, 120 to 150, um, and then sitting on around 150, we're talking about uh, changes in uh, variance. Suddenly, there's a lot more noise when there wasn't necessarily before in a particular uh, in a particular statistic, or there's a change in gradient or trend, or you know she was even talking about correlation structures and uh, interesting technical details like that. So you know this is this is quite quite in uh, quite a tricky thing to point out to to bring out in your data because if you're if the noise in your data is disguising the change point, if the noise is in fact roughly the same magnitude as the change that you're trying to pick up, then that's really quite tricky. So I think I think it's a it's it's a it's an exciting and, and clearly quite a challenging area to, uh, to to work in. I find that in a lot of the analysis that I've done before, especially image processing, which at the heart of it is signal processing, that signal to noise ratio that you mentioned is really important. And what I find very interesting about this change point analysis is that you don't necessarily need to know the underlying model and you don't need to know how to measure the noise or subtract it. And maybe to a certain degree, you don't need to account for seasonality. You know, it might come out as part of the analysis. But what's really interesting is that you do need to have a way to deal with a lot of data. And by not having to worry about these underlying models or external factors that may affect the um, measure of what you're looking at in some way, you simply can deal with all of this data and we're getting a lot more of it nowadays. And we've talked about phones, for example, and everybody has a phone and we're tracking so many aspects of data that being able to detect those trends and changes is where we're finding points of interest as well in whatever those data sources might be. Yeah, I think so. And I think we see, we see this cropping up all the time, especially now, especially where we've had a big change. We've had this huge disruption. It was hard to see why it was going to happen, when it was going to happen, and you know, what impact it was going to have. But it happened. And you know, I, I see people on social media now working for companies, they're working in data science, and they're, they're complaining that their algorithms have just fallen over. I saw a Sainsbury's data scientist going, how do you get a machine learning algorithm that's been trained on the old normal to be adapting and to recognize that that normal has changed and the new normal needs to be taken into account when it hasn't been trained on that data at all. Um, so I think, I think that's a really interesting case in point. And there's a lot of complex interactions of, of algorithms which are going to be impacted by these changes coming down as a result of this.
So what's the kind of cutting edge here and what techniques might we look into if we want to employ change point detection? So to understand what cutting edge is, we have to have a little bit of an insight into how this works. And the simple case is you're trying to detect a single change point, a single change, say, in, in a mean that's happened at a particular time point in a sequence of timestamp data. So, you know, to take that heartbeat example, I'm, I'm measuring my heart rate and for the previous 20 minutes, it's been static. It's been at sort of 55 beats a minute. And then suddenly I start exercise five minutes ago and then it, it went up to 90, 95 beats a minute, something like that. How am I <laughs> going to... jump out of bed. <laughs> yeah, right. 55. <laughs> I was probably I was probably trying to match my children uh, in, in, in their Joe Wicks exercise <laughs> yeah. or something. It's always a bad idea. So imagine I've got that change point. How am I going to pick that up? Well, I've got to have a model of the normal operation of my heart in the first place. So maybe I have a, a model which represents what my heart usually does when it's just operating at around a particular level. And it, you know, it'll go from 55 to 57 and then to 54 and so on. So there's the usual sort of fluctuation, which is not going to count as a change point in this context. You can't count every little tiny movement as a change point. Otherwise, you've not actually picked up anything. All you've detected is lots of noise. So you're going to have a, a model of your data at a particular level, and you're going to try to test a hypothesis, as we said, that there is a change point five minutes ago. And so to do that, I'm going to try and fit my model prior to five minutes ago for my heartbeat saying, okay, I, I think this is around about 55 on the average with some noise around that. Is that a good fit for the 20 minutes ago to five minutes ago sequence of data? And if it is, then the error compared to that model will be quite small. And then I will compare the suggested change point onwards to now with the new normal at 95 beats a minute as, as I'm exercising. And if I've chosen a good change point, then the error from five minutes till now will also be quite low. But if I haven't chosen a good change point, then the error will be high because I'll have got a sequence of data which is out of kilter with the model because I've tried to introduce a change point too early or introduce a change point too late. So I'm going to have an error in my, in my model there. So what does that all boil down to? It means that change point detection, like many statistical techniques, like many machine learning techniques, is an optimization. It's a minimization of error across lots of different suggestions for where this change point might be. Right. And as a user or a developer of the algorithms, you have to set these kind of thresholds and these windows that you want to compare and your um, significance of where you're going to decide that this is a particularly in interesting piece of data or not. Exactly. So you set your threshold, you say, if my error goes above a certain level, then I am going to assume that I've got a bad choice of change point. But if it, if it, if it goes below a certain level, then maybe I've got a good change point uh, selection and I can move on. So one of the algorithms for detecting multiple change points that's been quite popular is one called binary segmentation. And this is moving now away from just detecting a single change point in your time series to detecting many change points. Because you'd like to ideally have the ability to feed in a large sequence of time series and it find all the change points for you. 
Um, so this is one where it just uses the technique for finding a single change point to partition the time series into two. It goes, right, I think there's a change point there, uh, time seven. I'm going to partition the time series into two at time seven. So everything before time seven, I will then put to one side and I'll do a separate change point analysis on everything after time seven and so on. It just breaks down the time series into these two halves at each step until it's found all of the change points that are greater than a certain sort of tolerance, if you like. So that's, that's one of those techniques. And it, it, it comes at a computational cost. You, you know, this, that's going to be order n log n for the number of data points in your time series. So that's not insignificant. And there are other approaches that find the change points more precisely. They're exact, whereas binary segmentation isn't exact. It's an approximate technique. What we kind of haven't mentioned is that the human eye and, you know, the human brain can interpret these changes really well. And we'll look at these signals and we'll know inherently, yeah, there's definitely a change there. And we correct for that in, in some way in, in our cognitive process, um, but kind of find it amazing, if not frustrating that it's not as simple as that when we apply an algorithm or ask a computer to do it but for all of the data that we have now we're trying to get the computer to do it and one of the easy wins I was thinking when we were talking about this and thinking of it as a podcast is that we have this audio form that gets chopped and changed a little bit to be edited into a final episode so there will be that human process of clearly seeing this is where somebody is talking and this is where there's a gap in speech. I think that's a great example and, and actually Jason you've hit on a, an example of what we'd call static analysis of a, a pre-existing audio file in that case but the state of the art in change point detection is where you're having to pick up change points on the fly in a sort of online approach as you would say in the data science world so you're maybe processing a stream of audio and you're automatically marking those change points and your metadata is labeling those change points as it's detecting different uh, change points coming over the audio waveform and that's really tricky um, and 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 exciting and and is the state of the art and it happens to be also one of the techniques that Rebecca Killick has pioneered with her PELT algorithm. Uh, so that's, that I think is really exciting because that brings the possibility of being able to pick up these changes, not as some kind of batch process that you have to run for a long time um, at high, high computational cost um, overnight, but actually you can run it as your machine learning algorithm is consuming the data and you can start to label the data and say, okay, actually, we've just seen a change in variance now. We've just seen a change in mean. You'll need to take that into account when you're producing your, uh, your forecast or your optimal analysis. So I think, I think that's really exciting. So I guess at this point, we're going to have our change point to the outro. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for joining us today at the Data Cafe. You can share, subscribe or review online and please join us again next time.